Jewelry Makers, welcome to the show. If you've been listening this season, you know that we have been talking about remaking economics and what does it look like to actually change our economy, build our economy in such a way that it better serves humanity and this planet that we love and depend on. And so last episode, we had Catherine Trebek and she kind of really talked us through the high level terrain of like what a well-being economy sort of looks like. This episode, we're talking to Professor John Quiggin about some of the specific policies that we hear the most about. Um, He is an Australian economist. He's a professor at the University of Queensland, former member of the Climate Change Authority of the Australian government. And if you follow economics and politics in Australia at all, you've probably come across a lot of his work. He is very, very prolific. So he takes the time today to talk us through things like four days becoming the new full time and how would that actually work? A basic income versus a universal basic income and what some of the nuances are around that and the ideas that he has put forward. There's lots of stuff here. We even touch a little bit on modern monetary theory because it seems to be a question we get a lot. It's like, I feel like I'm missing something with this. You know, why does it seem so fringe? It kind of seems to make sense. Does debt actually matter at all? Why not? So it's a nerdy conversation, but a great conversation because it's about all of our lives. Who isn't thinking about money? Who isn't hearing from people who are struggling? There was a post on a community Facebook group from an affluent neighboring suburb saying, I'm looking for food banks. Does anybody know of anything locally? And you think, my goodness, in a country as wealthy as Australia, we should be able to do better than that. So that's what this conversation is about. I give you Professor John Quiggin. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us today and explain economics and the solutions to the economy that we can have. It is an honor to meet you. Great to be here. Now, look, you are so prolific and such an important voice and um, commentator on today's issues that I could just sit here for three hours asking you about inflation or our housing crisis or the stage three tax cuts. But actually, people can go and research that really easily online and see your views on a lot of those things. And and I encourage everyone listening to this to go and do that after, because I'm sure you're going to want to know more about what John thinks. But look, what I want to really try to get our heads around today is the solutions that move us forward, because I think that we have this weird blind spot when it comes to economics, where if you're not a professional economist or you don't have the extensive training in it, you feel completely unqualified to talk about it in a way that we don't like with climate change. You know, you can have an opinion about climate change without being a climate scientist and you can have ideas for how to make our world better, you know, gender equality, racial justice, reconciliation, things that we don't feel embarrassed about advocating for. We think that this is absolutely possible. But when it comes to the economy, All it takes is someone in a suit saying, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, most of us have that voice anyway. And so we're so unconfident in talking about solutions and we don't know where to begin. So that's what I want to get 
your brain to today because you are a teacher, you are a prolific writer, you are working in this, you are following Australian politics and economics very, very closely. So, so where do we begin? Yeah, well, I think um, we can begin with neoliberalism, which is a term that is banned about, like all terms of this kind, it's it's used very widely, legitimately, and then also, also in your ways, just to say, look, I yeah, this is something I don't like. Yeah. It must be neoliberal. Must be neoliberalism, yeah. but it it is meaningful. And so um, in Australia for a long time it was called economic rationalism. There's a whole set of ideas which I talk about in my zombie economics book and I argue in that book uh, written just after the global financial crisis that really the ideas of neoliberalism were discredited by it, but as the title implies, nonetheless continued to walk the earth in an undead form. And what we're seeing, I think, uh, as I would hope from that, is that gradually the hold of those ideas uh, on people's minds, generally in the population, but also in the policy elite, are starting to fade away. So, um, uh, so the a typical example, you know, arguably the flagship policy of, of neoliberalism is privatisation. The idea that we've got the governments doing all these things, but really the private sector should do them, uh, and we've seen that was uh, hugely influential and is now. You know, fairly thoroughly repudiated uh, in Australian politics. You know, if we look at the recent New South Wales election, uh, the, the Liberal government, which had been doing privatisation, was running away from it as hard as they could. Mm. Labor, when they got in, passed allegedly a constitutional amendment to say that Sydney water would never be privatised. Now, that's, of course, all political theatre, but the, the point that's being made is nobody very much thinks anymore that privatisation is the way to, to go forward. And similarly, we're seeing this uh, in the US context, but also in Australia, uh, a return to various forms of industrial policy. Now, again, a lot of this is kind of half-baked, uh, but we moved. You know, we went through a long period when the idea was, look, you have to let the market uh, run itself. Uh, government shouldn't pick winners. They should just let trade happen. And particularly, uh, particularly they should let financial markets do things. So... All of that is pretty thoroughly discredited. No one really thinks that what's happened in financial markets uh, represents, in some sense, a, a brilliant judgment on on what good projects. You know, if you believe that, you know, the, the the simplest and perfect refutation is Bitcoin, something utterly worthless that's nonetheless, <laughs> uh, yeah, trade in financial markets just treated as if, well, you can invest in Bitcoin, which is doing pointless calculations, or you can invest in solar energy. The stock market is not going to tell you which of those is. Is better or worse? So that's that's. I think we're, we're in the situation where those ideas, which are uh, they were, uh, yeah, new and radical ideas in the seventies, nineteen seventies, and eighties, and reflect and failures in what had gone on before that, then became sort of part of the mental furniture for people who n- never really thought, never really experienced the previous things. Now that's all gone. No one really believes in it anymore. But we we haven't yet. We certainly haven't formulated. Uh, a really compelling alternative theoretical framework, um, and we're still, I think, are now in the phase of casting for policy alternatives that we can we can uh, go forward with. So what, what the things I've mentioned in the past are really saying those things we had last century, public enterprises, uh, industrial policy weren't so bad after all, maybe we should try them again. Uh, but a, a very reasonable point is, well, 
that's not going to be the same. Yeah, I mean, even the very phrase industrial policy evokes you know, an kind of economy where lots of people went to work at a factory, stood on a production line, did stuff yeah, in Australia that made things. Uh, that really isn't isn't what uh, what the economy is like anymore. Uh, and so, um, uh, and so the question, the kind of question I'd like to move on to is is uh, what kind of exciting new ideas are there? In the policy space, as I say, I don't. Re- um, we haven't really come up with very much. I think to understand theoretically the kind of information slash services economy that we're now in, or to really work out precisely what went wrong with neoliberalism. But we we certainly are, I think, in a position where there's uh, space for new ideas. Yeah, and that's really exciting. And I, I want to kind of dive into some of them because, as you say. You know, there are a lot of people who would still be fans of like Keynesian economic theory, which I'm no expert in, but my understanding is basically, you know, the strong social welfare state, that period of, you know, time kind of post-World War II where inequality did go down and we had, you know, good wages, unionized workforce. And then something happened around the 70s with stagflation and that kind of all went out of fashion, but the neoliberals had sort of been building the case for their use for a really long time. Is that kind of the gist? Yeah, and you can read all that in my book. I mean, not not the only, uh, but I think it's good in the sense of uh, has has that historical framework that that's kind of hard. You know, there are some other good ones. Uh, Bad Long's uh, latest book, whose name's escaping me, uh, Slouch and Utopia, <laughs> that uh, covers a lot of that ground. But yeah, so that that so yeah, so it's pretty well documented for people is, who yeah. don't understand the sort yeah. of rise and yeah. hopefully the fall of neoliberalism. It's not like we haven't had enough crises to reveal the shortcomings of the market as this kind of panacea. So in terms of the solutions, like, first of all, before we before we come to very specific policy, I just want to ask an overarching question. There are people who believe capitalism is just utterly broken and we don't know what it's going to be replaced by, but gosh, we better come up with something radically different, democratic socialism through to God knows what. And there are people who are like, no, 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 we have to work within the system we have. It's all well and good to sort of dream about alternatives, but actually, you know, you start from where you are. What are the structural reforms that could actually make capitalism serve humanity better and operate within our planetary boundaries? On that optimistic to burn it all down scale, where do you sort of sit? Well, first saying uh, we have to start where we are. I suppose um, uh, an anecdote which you can read a number of ways. I remember reading in the 1960s about computer science was somebody saying, I don't know what the computer language of 2000 will be, but it will be called COBOL, which was then the dominant language eventually did die. But for a long while, what you saw was things changed, but it was still called COBOL or Fortran or whatever. So so I think, I think in a sense, and, and I suppose an important point I'd like to toss in is there's a rhetorical two-step, the... Um, technical term is Mott and Bailey for defenders of capitalism, in which on the one hand they say, look, uh, um, capitalism is the only successful system and and you say, you know, what about Sweden or, uh, 19, or, or 1950s, 60s Keynesians? They say, well, it's capitalism too. And then they say, but but we need to tear all that stuff down and have free money. <laughs> so, so true, yeah. So it's yeah. interesting that I don't, I'm, not in a hurry, certainly not in a hurry to eliminate, uh, uh, to eliminate, uh, for example, privately owned private business in general, and not you know, not seeing a very rapid move away from major corporations. Although, of course, 
uh, the discrediting of privatisation means, you know, that their role in the economy, I think, is going to decline and could decline a lot more. So I don't think in a sense uh, what we need to talk about is the direction we're moving in and not worry too much about, about labels. Of course, that entails saying uh, I sort of foresee life being more or less like it is now but better rather than, you know, rather than for example, the kind of alternative that, you know, people who talk about things like degrowth have in mind. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's helpful to just set the scene. Yeah. So, okay. So what do you think are some of the the sort of biggest uh, sort of systemic changes or structural reforms on a policy level that bring us closer to that kind of capitalism that we actually want? Because I know you're an advocate. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, as I say, the I mean, again, we're still in some ways saying, let's go back to where it all went wrong in the 1970s and think about where we'd be going. And and the first thing I want to talk about, which is actively happening, uh, is the idea of a four-day standard working week. And so we're seeing uh, actual movement on this, which makes it more than, um, and yeah, most of the movement coming from progressive employers with a bit of support from from unions and governments not really, yeah, to the extent governments are involved in it, it's more in their capacity as employers, sort of yeah. rather that, you know, uh, on which they historically were, were a leader in this respect, but at the moment uh, are a following. Governments aren't, you know, governments talk about the cost of living. Well, that really means can your wages cover your costs? And governments are, are no different from other employers in saying, well, uh, that really is not our problem. Uh, you know, we're, <laughs> we're not going to deal with the cost of living in the obvious way, which will be to raise the wages we pay. But but in the four-day week, we're seeing individual individual bits of the public sector along with along with progressive employers moving this direction. Why is that happening? Well, I think um, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of things going on. One is just that uh, it's long overdue. So we had steady reductions in standard working hours for 100-odd years until roughly the 1970s. Then nothing at all for 40 or 50 years. We had lots of technological progress in that time. We'd want to take some of that um, in terms of um, uh, uh, in, in, in terms of reduced working hours. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, the experience of the pandemic and, and work from home, although they're not exactly the same thing, what they've done is uh, undermine the position uh, now, not so much of capitalists, but of managers who as a group, love to see people in the office. They have a nice office of their own. Uh, yeah, somebody bring them coffee whenever they want it. Um, <laughs> it's and, a uh, yeah, there's a large class of managers for whom, you know, the way things were was very comfortable. They didn't know anything else. Um, and if you said, oh, we, you know, what we should do is just send everybody home and have them send their work in by email, as they would love, would, yeah, certainly I oh, yeah, certainly oh, I did do that, and, and uh, yeah, you could certainly see um, uh, people very keen that, that we should get back, and, and and still are, of course. I mean, the other version of this is is yeah, you know, the love for the CBD office and this, and how it's vitally important that cafes in the CBD should prosper at the expense of cafes in the suburbs. Um, but of course, they would again not thinking of this stuff that. Uh, yeah, again, when you look at it, the CBD is this thing for managers that they have the corner office and yeah, and yeah, they probably probably their house has a room just as nice as the corner office, but nobody gets to see it. So um yeah, so there's so a whole bunch of psychic rewards 
to manage as a part of this story. Uh, and finally, of course, we managed, um, you know, thanks to the COVID stimulus, uh, to get back to something like full employment. So, work it, so employers have to, have to look more for workers, and and because of communications, workers have and work from home, workers have become more mobile. So, I think so. So, all those things have shifted, and I think uh, the case for it, of course, is, has become stronger because uh, as a society, and, and rightly, we've we've I put more emphasis on on uh, uh, parents being involved in in the raising their children, particularly fathers, uh, and so the the kind of of social compact of the last century, which was you know, man went out to work and made made money, woman stayed home, looked after kids, uh, that doesn't work, and then the work intensification that we saw in the late twentieth century very much fell very heavily, precisely on. Uh, couples and single and single parents at the time when those demands were, were strongest. So I think there's a, you know, a super strong case for for uh, for that four day week, and as you know, and we we are actually seeing that happening. So I know there have been lots of trials. There have been some in Australia, New Zealand. There have been some overseas. They all tend to sort of report back this almost like. Wow, I want to believe this. This is—is is this too good to be true? Like productivity seems to stay the same. Sometimes it goes up. People get the same pay. The, there's a boost to staff morale. There's a sense that this is a great recruitment tool. And people say, "I don't want to go back." You know, they do the trial, and then most of the time, companies keep it. And workers say, "You know, you'd have to pay me so much more now to work that extra day that no one's going to do that, or I wouldn't take the money no matter what it was." That's pretty extraordinary. So it's like you're getting paid, you're, you're doing, you know, you're working 80% of the time. This is under a full-time, you know, five-day-a-week job. You're working 80% of the time, but for 100% of the pay and 100% of the productivity output that you would otherwise be expected to do. Yeah, well, of course, one, I mean, part of the story is that this has been building up over a long period in which the wage share effectively, for a bunch of reasons, we're due a big wage increase. And um, and that uh, the um, uh, first a long period of of uh, declining wage share, and then the recent inflation. Uh, so yeah, employers have, and yeah, so so we're big that yeah, and so rather than give the wage increase, yeah, one way of thinking, rather than give the wage increase, employers in, are like, I know, how would well, you like? Yeah, but there's also I think again, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to be super economic rationalist about this, but. As I say, part of this part of the reason we had such resistance to change was the attitudes of managers who weren't doing what, in some sense, they were supposed to do. That is, do the most productive thing. They were doing what we what they were used to make them comfortable. Now we're looking at a different group of managers who are the ones who are talking about pay, and they're used to paying two, three percent. You know, there's a single money illusion. They really can't get their heads around the idea that, look, for whatever reason, price have gone up by 7%, what was, you know, 8% is the new 3%, desperately refusing that. And, of course, once that happens in a full, you know, high employment environment, people start walking. So uh, so what we're seeing is uh, that for, for a combination of good and bad reasons, uh, a good reason being getting over the illusion that the office is the centre of productivity and that people have these marvellous conversations around the water cooler. You know, I can, I, mean, I actually use the water cooler at work and I can, 
I think I can safely say in <laughs> a 40 plus year working group, <laughs> I have never had a I've, I could count the number of conversations I've had at the water cooler. Mostly I would just shuffle off in an embarrassed way. <laughs> let the next person go. They were and, the social glue driving the. And, I mean, and zero, absolutely zero productive conversations at water cooler, which, you know, the fact that this is a cliche just tells you, I think, that there's something going wrong here. But anyway, so because my colleagues and I, we all work from home and we have this in joke of like, hashtag water cooler when we just want to like send a random yeah. email it's not really our work and yeah. one of our new team members is like what's a water cooler yeah. <laughs> what, what are you talking about yeah yeah. I mean, yeah 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 so i mean what i actually do is say let's go and have a cup of coffee but yeah. um uh, and so i will actually yeah, i mean for a planned in-person meeting that that's good and also keeps me outside yeah yeah no that's a very different thing and look I want to acknowledge not every job can be done or should be done from a laptop. We absolutely get that. And also like not everyone can make a living or wants to make a living in a traditional full-time role. And so you have people who are working part-time, a lot of them, you know, women with other caring responsibilities as well, you know, but also you have people who are working overtime just to make ends meet. And I think sometimes I get left a little bit out of this conversation, low wage, workers who have to work 50, 60 hours a week currently to make ends meet. Now, I would hope that the benefit of a four-day becoming the new full-time work week would mean that part-time workers would also get that bumpy pay, right? Yeah. I would personally yeah. be no, that's, Yeah. I mean, certainly yeah. the way our institutions work, it's roughly, yeah, it's broadly, broadly speaking, if, if the standard workforce, get, yeah, standard workforce gets a, a four-day week, that flows through fairly straightforwardly to part-time workers in the same industry. I want to just step back and remind us that although work from home has been a catalyst for this four-day week movement, the, the first people who got something like this were, were building workers in the 80s. They got a nine-day, you know, they were the only ones who got anything out of the big push for a 35-hour week. They got a nine-day fortnight. That's been chipped away at in various ways, but there's nothing, although, yeah, although, Though the two ideas fit together in a certain way, there's nothing office-based about the idea of a four-day yeah. week. So um, yeah. um people have different preferences. Some people, some people like working and want to work long hours. That's uh, mostly high-paid people, I think. Uh, but um uh, but uh, the crucial point would be, as I said, a large part of the story here is that we're dual wage increase, and for the majority of people on a standard five-day week. The way to get that is probably to move to four days. Some people will say, well, look, I need to take a second job or I need I need to go for overtime. As far as I can see, that's a minority. The big push for work intensification in the late 90s uh, was pushed back. It was pushed by employers or more precisely by managers, I think, pushed back against by workers. So, so uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's the kind of story going on. Yeah, just just re-mentioning something you mentioned, which is important. A big part of the saving for employers is is recruitment and re- retention. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that sort of yeah. So when you think, how can we do this twenty percent? The answer is partly just well, we don't have people leaving and and um, and not being and being hard to replace, which is something with with full employment. Uh, partly, yeah, we. we you know, get rid of largely get rid of sickies, and you know, if we ever move fully to this, we'd probably yeah you know, probably lose a few Monday public holidays. You know, the kings 
birthday that isn't the king's birthday, for example, we just say, <laughs> oh, uh, we'll just, you know, those those so inclined can can raise a cheer on the relevant Monday and if you're in the honours list, that's good, but but you don't get any, yeah. You're I think we trained that. Like I think if you put it to a vote and said, would you give up some public holidays for a long weekend every weekend, that most people would be like, hell yeah. And, I, you know, I've talked to parents who say school, the school day, I've got children in young primary school, like five days is a lot. It's a lot for them. And yet they have to go to school five days a week so that parents can work five days a week so that everyone can keep a roof over their head seven days a week. Yeah. So certainly one of the, yeah, schools is one of the things where, again, yeah, we use this idea that this is how it is. But other countries, yeah, lots of, you know, the length of the school year, for example, differs radically around the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when you ask why, it's, well, you know, the reaping season or, or something of that kind. Yeah, and I grew up in America where you got three months off over yeah. summer, you know, and it, it, you're absolutely right. We get very fixed in these, I, you know, set in our ways, and then COVID was such a massive disruption, and I think a lot of things have been challenged. So, okay, I hear people say, yeah, it sounds great, but it won't happen, or it sounds great, but come on, like... What's the likelihood of this? You know, I know Jacinda Ardern had tried to push it in New Zealand for a little while. Um, do you think, like, is this the kind of thing that we need government? It's not leaning on it currently. Like, what's the pathway to make yeah. this well, I think, I think, more yeah. companies yeah. taking it up? Well, historically, it would have been unions and government. That's how we yeah. did it. And, and that's a major obstacle that we don't have. I mean, I mean unions still play a much bigger role in this in the wage setting system than than union coverage would would suggest, but uh, but yeah, they don't have the power to push hard. So I think I think the answer is more progressive employers doing it for the next few years, uh, and then uh, and then unions and government uh, unions pushing it through as a as a bargaining demand, and then finally government coming along and cleaning up. You know, uh, yeah, well, in in this context, governments plus um, arbitration bodies, but governments put getting behind and saying, "Yes, we're going to work on a four day week from now on," and we'll yeah, we'll, we'll depending, yeah, we will uh, either legislate or go to our or, or make this or act in support of cases uh, of this is a standard working condition. There could be tax incentives or other things. Well, that- I think I think as I say in the, in the Australian context. Yeah, in the Australian context, we still have enough formalised stuff that that we could say award, yeah, award, award, stand award. The government could legislate and say award conditions will be a four day week. Yeah, um, no, I mean, and look for you know to that point about the low wage workers as well. I think anyone who isn't being paid a living wage with a secure job, like that, is an issue that needs to be addressed anyway. Yeah. That people shouldn't have to work two and three jobs just to make ends meet. And so we need to get our heads around that. We need to make sure that we're not leaving people behind. And for people who want to, you know, work three days a week instead of four or two, like, right. Like if that pay rise could flow through to everyone, which I think would be an interesting battle, right? Like if you're a part-time worker, do you suddenly get a boost to your wage because four days becomes the new full-time? But gosh, it'd be a, it'd be a good one. Yeah. It'd be a good well, conversation. I think, I think to the way our system is set up, that would more or less automatically happen. That, gosh, that would be yeah, uh, life-changing yeah, the, for the a stick, lot of people. The, yeah, the, getting it through in the award system would be the hard part. Making it a, a standard condition would, would be the thing. Well, look, we'll put in links in the show notes because I know there are a few campaigns where people can throw their weight behind this idea. Um, if there's any references you, know, you want to recommend. But I think it is a really exciting notion. I think all of us are craving more time, certainly those of us who are in the crunch 
years of caring obligations career um it's it's a lot uh and you know the memes on the internet my goodness you know it's like how am i supposed to do all of this like it I just wanted to say that if this conversation has got you thinking, well, we would really like to hear from you. So you can get in touch with us directly via email podcast at australiaremade.org. You can also give us a call and the details for that are in your show notes. I want to give a huge shout out to everyone who takes a minute to spread the word about this podcast or to write a review. It means the world to us. We are a small, not-for-profit, independent team building a community of people who want a kinder, smarter, more hopeful and solutions-focused politics. So if that sounds like your jam, please go to the website australiaremade.org and sign up to get updates and stay in the loop and check us out. Thanks. Back to the show. Moving on to like another idea, which I really want to pick your brain about a little bit, the universal basic income. Sure. Yes or no, possible or not. Is it a good thing? Should Gina Reinhardt get one? Like, okay, well, is it inflationary? I'll, I'll start at the beginning and say Gina Reinhardt shouldn't get one. Okay, um, all right. Cute. So, so that <laughs> really, I mean, there's two, Yeah, and this is a, marks a fairly sharp division within the basic income movement. Should we be looking primarily at universal or primarily at basic? And so I'm for basic which means the focus should be making sure that everybody has an adequate income rather than universality. Now, a technical point which you can see in my literature is if we were in a society of just single individuals, um, we all earned earned money and and, and worked hours and that kind of stuff, this would be a purely cosmetic difference because what you can show is it doesn't matter. Up, it doesn't matter in principle. It, you know, in a, if we're all individual wage earners or non earners, whether you just tax all of us a lot and then give us a lump sum, or whether you say, "Look, I'm going to give you a lump sum enough to live on, and then I'll claw it back as a means test, and that that claw back will be added to your marginal income tax rate." Those two are the same, and the same is true of the negative income tax that Milton Friedman proposed long ago, but. Um, uh, but once you start living in households, you really have a fundamental choice. You can say, "Look, we're going to treat, we're going to treat these as two separate. Two, yeah, we're going to treat these as completely separate people, and we're going to, uh, and they're, they're both going, yeah, they're both going to get the basic income, and then the one who pays tax will pay taxes, and that's how we do it. Uh, that, and that's essentially how the tax system works. My spouse, there's some bits and pieces." But essentially, bits and pieces have been added on. But as far as the ordinary income tax goes, uh, my my income and my spouse's income are two separate units. They're taxed on on the they're both taxed on the same scale, uh, and no indication is taken of the two. Whereas the welfare system, the welfare bits of the system, including things like the Medicare levy, 
as part of this, I don't know household basis. The, the, you start an assumption that, look, if you're in the household, I mean, there's a, in an naive version, all the resources in the household are equitably shared or whatever, even if you don't buy that, we, you know, the state can't look inside the household and, and work out what's happening. It just treats the household as having money available to it and the welfare system says, look, if if my spouse is unemployed, well, that's out of luck. I can see, see the nice sandstone building behind you. Yeah, you're fine. Uh, you know, your spouse can look after you. And so, so that's, I think, the crew, that And so that says we can either sort of try and assimilate everything to the income tax system, which is what UBI does, or we can expand... Uh, the welfare part of the system, which is what a proposal called the Livable Income Guarantee, which I've put forward uh, along with other researchers, does. And the idea here is, well, the first part of it is livable. You know, for a brief period during the pandemic, we had a livable rate of unemployment benefit. You know, so the first step should be um, raise, um, raise that. I think in the questions you uh, ask, what should, the, what should the Albanese government do first? And I suppose that would do the decent thing there. As it was, you know, they had to be drag-kicking and screaming even to match Morrison, which um, is, is pretty sad. But, um, uh, but yeah, so the first thing would be to raise benefits to a livable level, and the second thing would be to, uh, I think the second in order would then be to treat, uh, in terms of compliance, to treat the tax welfare system as a whole. So the big difference here is the tax system starts by saying, look, you tell us what you earned. Uh, and put uh, and pay the tax. Uh, if something looks suspicious, yeah, we'll check it out. And if you've been lying to us, you'll get in trouble. Um, where are you? this is a self-assessment. Whereas the welfare system is, we assume you're a crook. Um, you know, unless you're not an age pensioner, we, we've got you. Yeah, uh, um, you know, you prove to us. That you have complied with every one of these every one of these regulations. So the first thing would be to to move to move to a a, a self essentially a self assessment basis. But the second thing would be to actually expand the eligibility so that things like volunteering, um, creative work, and so forth uh, could be could be uh, put in place of active job search. Um, and that could be expanded in various ways. And again, and you could say, in the ultimate version of this, yeah, if we if we all got rich enough, and if if we got relaxed enough, we just say, oh, at this point, we don't need to worry. If you think that you know improving your Sudoku score is is a <laughs> uh, is a contribution, you can have the money. But but that's I think a long way off. There are yeah you know, a bunch of of good reasons, a bunch of inevitable reasons why people aren't going to like the idea of. You know, paying somebody to improve their Sudoku score. So, but equally, there's lots of people doing stuff that isn't supported properly now that that we could support, um, and um, uh, and that goes with a full employment commitment in terms of shifting the balance from work from your balance of power from employers to workers, which makes all our lives better off in all sorts of ways. Okay, so let's come to the full employment thing because I think that's also really important. But just to make sure I've got this kind of more or less understood. You're suggesting that we make, you know, our welfare payments a lot more livable for people and then expand the category. So, you know, you might not be actively out there searching for a job, but you're doing 
volunteer work in your community, you're caring, you're doing other things that are currently not really financially supported all that well, if at all. And, or you're a creative person, you're an artist. And so there's this kind of basic livable payment that comes to you um, for these kinds of activities. Is that sort of similar to like a participation income? Yeah, yeah. no, indeed, that's exactly right. what I'm okay. thinking with that. And, and we don't treat you like a crook for wanting one. We, we sort of get you to self-report on what you're doing and, yeah. Okay. All right, interesting. And so then onto this idea of a sort of universal jobs, full employment. I hear this term banded around and, and I think for a lot of people, it's like harkens back to almost the 1930s Great Depression. Like we're going to pay people to go out and like build a railroad. Like what what is this idea of full well, employment? I think, I mean, jobs? Essentially, I mean, the, the partly there's two, two bits. Well, one is just the commitment. And so after World War II, we had uh, the white paper, saying the government is going to have full employment. Now, that then we say, well, how, you know, the Keynesian model is mostly indirect, just says well, what we'll do. Yeah, the reason we have unemployment is because there's not, not enough demand in the economy. If it falls short, we'll create more demand by giving people money to spend. So, and, and then you, then if that doesn't work, you can say, look, maybe, yeah, maybe we'll try, you know, job creation projects. But the first thing is a commitment and, you know, one of the big, disasters of the last couple of years is two years ago Albanese was saying yes we're going to we're going to renew this commitment we're going to have uh, a full employment white paper and a job summit but by the time we got there it was a jobs and skills summit and the fall had been dropped off of full employment so the first thing is I suppose a commitment to say yes yeah this is really a top priority for us which almost looked as if it might happen um then I guess yeah, the question of yeah. So I suppose that that I think in many ways is more significant than um, uh, than yeah the argument about well how how do we do this? But yeah, why the, do you think they changed their minds? Why did that so quietly fall away? A good question. I mean, it's not clearly yeah. The Reserve Bank wants higher unemployment, and at some point they must had had to work this out. Um, Albanese wanted it. Uh, yeah, it's hard. To, I mean, certainly. Certainly, it's hard to see, hard to see why, 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 yeah. Given the light, given the long term prospects, why they didn't, yeah. The alternative would have been to take a victory lap on this stuff and say, yes, we're here and we're going to stay there. But they haven't. I mean, if you look at the look at the budget, it actually projects a significant increase in unemployment above the rate that even the Reserve Bank would. It is this notion of the non accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, which replaces full employment. Their estimate is actually like four and a bit percent, and the government the government is projecting four and a half. So they're actually projecting going up, you know, going away from full employment as the you know, signal achievement of their first term in office. So that's um, yeah. So no, it's, it's unclear. Other than, yeah, un, it's unclear. I mean, yes, to do with everything with with this government, how much of it is how much of it is timidity and how much of it is being on the other side. Mm. And I think it's, you know, even to to try to understand, like, I think one of the reasons, especially right now, that a lot of these ideas get shot down or we're a bit timid about them is it's like all someone has to say is, well, that's just going to drive up inflation or that. Even. And you go, oh, OK, OK, we'll just back away from that rather than kind of interrogating it and going, well, hang on, how and why yeah. and what else could we do? And, and I suppose, I mean, I suppose there's a bunch of questions about 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 inflation that, um the, you know, uh, lots of economists, uh, you know, in fact, this view is probably because economists have thought about it, 
much more prevalent among economists than non-economists is, you know, 2% inflation is a really bad idea. We should have 4%. And there's a bunch of reasons essentially to do with, well, if you want want the Reserve Bank to do its stuff, it has to cut interest rates, but it can't cut them below zero. With 4% inflation, a zero interest rate is really stimulatory. With 2%, it doesn't do much, as we saw both during the GFC and during the pandemic. So, so there's, yeah, the, I think I an mean, obvious question is, um, is yeah, granted that, uh, granted that, yeah, we learned our lesson in the sixties that you can't just let the rate of inflation keep on growing. Uh, there's still not uh, not very much of a case for saying, uh, yeah, any any period of high inflation is a disaster. Yeah, we had huge inflation in the early fifties, for example got it down again. Uh, so, yeah, the, the idea that, that inflation should take precedence over everything else is, is you know, doesn't make a lot of sense. It's actually pretty, as long as it doesn't get away, pretty harmless. And the claim that, oh, it inevitably will get away essentially is based on a single period. Hmm. I mean, certainly so many people are hurting right now with the interest rate rises and and keep asking, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. And something like a basic income, if it is just going to be inflationary, it's like, well, maybe we shouldn't do that. So the idea with that is that you you get it back through taxes and kind well, of keep yeah. it. So certainly, yes, yeah. so certainly. I mean, I mean, broadly speaking, I mean, it's not, you know, uh, I mean, leaving aside the sort of inflation framing, which is, is unhelpful, um, and maybe come into MMT, which has this kind of flavour. Oh, modern. good. I was hoping we could yeah. get there. <laughs> um, the answer is don't think about money, think about real resources. If starving artists aren't going to be starving, they're going to be eating food, that food can't be eaten by anybody else, that means we have to tax, that means we have to tax people spending so that we can get, you know, so that we can pay for that food uh, uh, so yeah, and correctly understood MMT says this, but because it came up during a period when we had more or less chronic high unemployment, it was sold as look, we can have all this marvelous stuff and we don't have to pay for it. Um so the answer roughly is don't worry, yeah, you know, forget about the inflation framing, but do say yes, the whole idea of of liberal income guarantee isn't that we can just give people give people money is we can take money or yeah, take we can contribute money as as income earners, take money from high income earners who don't want to pay it and give that money to uh yeah, or yeah, and of course that money so give those resources uh, to people who are going going to use them. And the same is true, uh same is true pretty much for uh for job guarantee type programs. Uh there's no free lunch there because all of the earnings, all yeah, the, the wages that the wages that people are paid will more than consume uh, the, the extra output they generate. Uh, that's otherwise yeah, that's the story of it. So again, uh, we have to look at these things as stuff that will be mean less consumption for uh, the average mod, middle or high income earner, and and of course the four day week is like that too. We having worked four days, as you said, we could all say, "Look, that's not enough. I really want to go out and work for a fifth day." If we all, if indeed that was people's choice, then it would be. But in the end, we are giving something up. Um, uh, but taking collectively, we're better off having more free time. Yeah, take the, we're better off having more free time than than 
higher consumption for the majority of us, and we're better off being a society where if something bad happens to us, you know, job loss or, or whatever, we have a decent living standard rather than one in which, uh, you know, one in which you're always looking down, potentially falling down to that trap. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot more anxiety, isn't there, when you know that if you don't keep earning more, that you are going to fall behind mm-hmm. and that there's, yeah. you know, you can't rely on the public goods and the public services and the public social safety net to, to catch you. Mm. And certainly you see that in the US in all sorts, yeah. But, um, yeah, with, yeah, I'm just saying, I mean, the, the things like deaths of despair are a very complicated story, but certainly what you see is, um, I think, yeah, this, te- yeah, slightly off topic, it yeah, tends to be a big focus on whichever terrible drug it is that's causing causing this, but you, you always had crack cocaine, had methamphetamines, then opioids, all those things yeah, came around the world and didn't wreak the kind of social havoc that they did in the US because it, it was it was the social context, not the chemical properties of the drug that were, were doing the damage. Yeah. Uh, look, I feel like I'm trying to get you to cram, you know, a sort of <laughs> 10-week or more course, possibly an entire economics degree into a 15-minute conversation, which is entirely unfair. But I do so appreciate the chance to talk to such a, a sort of sound expert on this stuff, because I, I think that these ideas are really important. So we've talked about the idea of a sort of, you know, jobs guarantee or the the idea of government even committing to full employment as a goal and then figuring out, okay, how are we going to do it? How are we going to make it happen? You know, if an academic like yourself gets laid off, that's a different skill set to somebody who might be going, you know, give me a job building a thing. You know, there, there would be lots to work out, but I think that combination of like a really good, um, livable, you know, place where if you need that income, it is there for you. Plus the commitment to, hey, if we need to create demand in the economy in order to, you know, help you find um, meaningful work, we will do that. Like that's that's a sort of pretty compelling proposition. And then the idea on top of that of more free time, you know, more time away from just working to to keep a roof over our heads. Um, you know, I, I went out to our listeners and asked them, you know, um, what do you, what's your question for an economist? And just because we have already just briefly touched on modern monetary theory or MMT, um, one of the people said, you know, MMT seems to make sense. You know, this idea that a household budget and a government that can print its own sovereign currency are not the same thing. But why is it so fringe? Like, am I missing something? What's going on? Well, so as I say, I mean, Oh, I'm okay. Old-fashioned Keynesian. So roughly speaking, there's a lot of overlap with old-fashioned Keynesianism, and in that respect, it's absolutely correct. Uh, but there's also, as I say, this belief that, well, I mean, I don't in general like anything that talks primarily about money as opposed to resources. So, I mean, the fact the government can the government can the government can print you know, has its own currency says, roughly speaking, it says we don't need to worry about the gold sand, things like that. As Keynes put it, what we what we can do, we can afford. But the, the other side is that. what we can't afford, what we can't do, we can't afford. So um, so what that says is, yeah, is it, if if we have the capacity to uh, if we have the capacity to provide everyone with a living income uh, with the, with those resources, uh, then we can we can finance it. The financing isn't the issue, uh, but uh, 
it doesn't get away from the fact that, you know, that this loaf of bread that I eat is one that someone else can't eat. We can't. Uh, and so and so in particular, once we get to a, a situation of near full employment, that means uh, that means that the way in which we implement that is through higher taxes. And so, yeah, a, a kind of point, a way of making this point is, you know, that the um, spending precedes the taxes, um, the taxes are just there to, to sob up the excess demand. That's a perfectly legitimate way of doing it, do, of talking about things, uh, but what it doesn't say is, yes, look, uh, Gina Reinhardt's big and powerful and I really don't want to take her on, uh, so we'll just leave her untouched and just print some money and give it to somebody else. Uh, if, you know, or even, you know, John Quiggan and, and the upper middle class of the academic profession, uh, lots of them vote Labor and they might get annoyed. We better not touch them either. If we are going to provide resources for things, those resources have to be taken from somewhere else. There aren't, yeah, there are still pl- uh, significant numbers of unemployed people, but there aren't lots of unemployed nurses, doctors, builders, et cetera, ready to, to, ready to do stuff. If we want to build a public building, those people will have to stop building bigger houses. If we want more social housing, you know, that's that's building workers that have to be taken away from private luxury accommodation and so forth. Mm. So thinking about what we want things to do, I can't, I hate this question, but I hear it so often that I can't not ask it, what about debt? Why doesn't? And I know, look, you know, we're running, we're running close to the end and time to land the plane, but like, you know, just the other day on the radio, there was a politician raving about, you know, the national debt is going to be costing us this much money per second in interest rates that we could be spending on public services. It's not. No. So, yeah, you know, all that stuff is largely bonus. Um, but, you know, that is, there's, you know, we, certainly for Australia, debt isn't a problem. Uh, yeah, that is, public debt isn't a problem. Uh, and uh, and with the kind of interest rates we have, it's not really a significant fiscal problem for governments. But what it doesn't do, and yeah, what it doesn't do, uh, unless we borrow from foreigners and the world as a whole can't borrow from foreigners, uh, what it doesn't do is create resources that says we can do stuff that we otherwise couldn't do. If we don't, yeah, if we don't borrow from foreigners, you know, supposing we borrow, yeah, supposing we borrow, the government says we're going to borrow it, borrow it from me, borrow it from, yeah, whatever. That's that means money I can't, yeah, money I can't spend, and of course I'm going to want that money back. At some point, so there's no, it, it, you know, you don't. It's not a magic pudding. Uh, it's yeah. I mean, the the paranoia about debt is a is a feature about neoliberalism that that we can largely forget about, uh, but it doesn't get us around the issue of um, of you know if we want to do something, yeah, you know, we have to we have to give up something else. I suppose I'll plug maybe finish off on this one because it's perfect. My whole my second book. Economics in Two Lessons is all about opportunity cost. It says don't worry about the money. Look at what, you know, if you're doing something, what else could you be doing with those resources? And that's the choice we always need to think about. I love that. Don't think about them, like worry about what we want the money to do and let's have a purpose-driven economy, not a debt and deficit or profit-driven conversation. Um, Professor John Hogan, thank you so much for taking this time out today. If people want to find you, follow you, read more of your work, where should they go? Uh, I suppose use your favourite search engine, hopefully not Google, but um, uh, just uh, I have um, a Substack you can subscribe to. Uh, that's that's the most reliable these days. I have a blog 
which you see links to the Substack, uh, spread across all social media. Mastodon is the one to use there. Um, and, yeah, you know, now and then I turn up in the papers and stuff like that. But, yeah, uh, Mastodon and the Substack are the two, two best places to look. Fantastic. And thank you so much for just these big idea conversations that I think expand our horizons of what's possible and what we should be arguing for, but also just trying to understand and what we should be looking for. So I really appreciate it. Okay. Well, look, thanks very much for having me and uh, hopefully do it again sometime. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Remakers. I'm the host, Lily Spencer, and I record my part of these conversations from the beautiful Guppy Guppy country on the Sunshine Coast of Queensland. Just want to honor the incredible elders of these lands and waters and Aboriginal culture. 60,000 years is the oldest continuing civilization on Earth. I also want to pay a shout out to our producer, Anna Wilson, to my colleague and sometimes co-host, Dr. Millie Rooney, You can learn more about Australia Remade and everything we're about over on australiaremade.org. And in the meantime, thank you for sharing. Thank you for listening and subscribing, sending us your thoughts. We really appreciate all of the support that you give the podcast. We'll see you next time over on The Remakers. Remakers.